everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Brian Bowling, and with me as always is Brandon Odo. Hello. Today it's just the two of us, so we're going to do a case. Brandon has got something for me. Some sort of bread and butter critical care today, sort of the basic things that you would find on any any kind of uh, board review or in-service exam or anything or sort of basic training testing scenarios for things that happen in the ICU. Yeah, the theme today is going to be hypotension, which um, I think is a deceptively simple topic. It, it kind of you know extends across many of the problems and diseases we deal with in critical care. Uh, a lot of pathophysiology, modalities of monitoring. Uh, but at the end of the day, after all that textbook stuff, you still have to have a practical approach to a you know, patient that's in front of you who's got a low blood pressure. So right in our wheelhouse of figuring out kind of practical schemas and approaches to simple things. Um, so I thought we'd go through at least one, maybe a few patients. So Brian. Yes. You are coming in for, let us say, a night shift. Um, you get the patient panel signed out to you, and one of them is a 50-year-old male. Actually has an unknown medical history. He had been admitted about six hours ago after he was witnessed at a gas station behaving sort of bizarrely and with very slurred, dysarthric speech. So somebody called an ambulance. They brought him to your ED. They scanned his head and found a pretty substantial left-sided intraparenchymal bleed with some subarachnoid blood. He was hypertensive then. They started him on a nicardipine drip. And he was just pretty altered, so he ended up getting intubated to protect his airway. He came to the ICU. Um, He's been there for several hours. You, of course, are just getting in. And while you're getting settled, um, you hear from his nurse who says that, you know, the, the nicardipine he was on has now been weaned all the way off and his blood pressure is actually running a little on the low side now. Um, they're just kind of keeping an eye on it, but the, you know, the drip is off. They wanted you to know, and you sort of say, okay, cool. And then not too much later, you hear back again and they're like, you know, it's just kind of, his pressures are soft. Um, it's like 90 over 50 right now. Um, there is an arterial line. Um, and the map's like 60. So you wander over to the room and you stick your head in. The patient is lying there in bed, intubated. And you look at the monitor and th- that is indeed the pressure. The heart rate's about 80, you look sinus. The last temperature they got was 37.9. The patients then are on a little bit of propofol at like 20 an hour. There's been like purine, fentanyl, uh, peripheral IVs. So tell tell me your first plan of attack here. And I really want you to tell me kind of each thing that, you would want to do in this case and really what you would do if this were a real patient, not, not in a textbook. Um, but I'm going to ask you, you know, to 
to justify each of those things, not to, not to challenge you, but because I want to know, you know, what it's doing for you to either help you diagnostically or to, you know, to treat something. So what's, what's your first move here? Sure. Well, I think the first thing to do with any kind of situation like this, any kind of acute change is first of all, how acute is this? You said this is sort of something that's kind of happened over time. We've weaned the cardine off and things have just kind of kept going down, right? So this isn't like an abrupt change, right? Yeah, over several hours. Okay. What, is, what does that tell you? Well, so I think, you know, the, with an, any kind of acute abrupt change, the first thing I would ask is sort of what preceded it? Did we do something to this guy to, to cause this? Uh, if it's not so abrupt, then I'm more concerned that there's something underlying going on. Um, that we're not yet aware of. I guess the next thing would be how accurate is the data, right? You said there's an art line in place. I assume it's got a good waveform. It, it looks appropriate. It looks, it's yeah, all, it's uh, got a nice you know, waveform. leveled appropriately and stuff. Yeah, it doesn't look too wacky. Um, so just to, to finish your last point, you're saying that a more sudden change is more likely to require a, an explanation as in there was a provoking factor for it, whereas something more gradual may just be a uh, kind of evolution of something that was already going on. Is that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, not, not necessarily, but when I think of like an acute, something that just happened randomly, I feel like it's often associated with a change. You know, the patient just got a med and they're having an anaphylactic reaction to the med. Um, they just got something, you know, that a med that would cause hypotension, like a bolus of uh, propofol or a you know, dose of an opioid or something like that. Whereas a slower onset is I'm less likely to attribute to something that we did and more to something that's underlying that we just have become aware of. So okay. for example, well, sudden guy, things are often iatrogenic, whereas yeah, more gradual yeah. things are more fitting with just disease being disease. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so for example, like with this guy, you know, he was hypertensive. How hypertensive was he when he presented? Do we know? He was like 195 over 105. Okay, so not horrible, uh, just too high for given his uh, intracranial hemorrhage. Um, so, you know, then you start thinking of like, well, what else could be going on? Were we masking something before with our treatments, et cetera? Um, so then, okay, you know, so then that your second thing was, you know, is the data itself good? Yeah. So assessing what you're, you're monitoring, um, is there something that could cause, you know, a suddenly low blood pressure in someone who had had a normal one based on, you know, inaccurate monitoring? Well, I mean, you know, I see stuff all the time with, uh, like leveling of the transducer, you know, the bed gets moved around the transducers attached to something other than the bed. Um, and suddenly we have a you know transducer that's way too high or way too low that causes a false reading. Uh, maybe the arterial line wasn't great to begin with, and over time it's sort of just crapped out. Particularly with hypotension, I see a lot of times the the A line just is kind of not working. It becomes quote positional or whatever. And if you flush it hard, then suddenly you get a much better waveform and a much better number. And then sure, it will yeah. gradually sort of flatten out again. So that's sort of yeah. things that I would think of in, in terms of troubleshooting the actual data. Yeah. 
I do um I do often tell people and it's ninety nine percent true. Um usually when A lines start to fail, it's they're they're damped, you know, the waveform right. amplitude is is depressed. Usually the map will still be accurate. You know, you're losing pulsatility, right? The kind of baseline pressure in the vessel, unless it's like completely occluded, it usually will still match a cuff or another line or whatever you choose to use. So if you're into maps, then it tends to be okay. But definitely, uh, it's they're usually you're usually accurate devices, but everything can fail. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the next step then would be to sort of start thinking of reasons this guy might be hypotensive. Um, and ways to address his hypotension. So you said he's like 90 over 50? Uh, yeah, maps around 60. Okay. So just looking at that, I start thinking more along the lines of volume depletion rather than vasoplegia, if that makes sense. You know, it lower systolic. Um, so, you know, is there signs that he's bleeding? Is his neuro exam unchanged or is it uh, significantly worse than before? You know, with him being intubated, that's a little harder to say, but could this be a worsening of his bleed? Is he bleeding somewhere else? You're is saying he, his his pulse pressure is on the narrower side. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that meant you're saying, talking about bleeding or uh, you said like, like dehydration. Yeah, or like volume what, loss. Um, if he was, you know, you know, is he dehydrated for some reason? Has he had uh, a lot of urine output? You know, is he potentially, you know, in DI from, you know, I don't, I don't know without seeing his CT scan. I don't know where his bleed is. If it's potentially pushing on something that's causing him to dump a lot of urine. Uh, does he have an NG tube in that's putting a lot of fluid out, et cetera? Okay. There is an OG tube in. It's on suction. It's not putting out hardly anything. Okay. Um, the n- nurse takes a look at the Foley and says, it's been, you know, 75 an hour or so. Okay. So I think the next thing I would do would be to grab the ultrasound and put an echo probe on his chest and see what his heart looks like. What, what view are you starting with here? Well, ideally parasternal long is kind of like where I like to start. I find that's usually a difficult view to get in a lot of patients that I see because of all the lung disease uh, in our area. But, uh, you know, that would be a good place to start or apical. Okay. And what are you looking for? Um, looking for, first of all, evidence of hypovolemia. Is his heart look um, empty or is it, um, does volume status look okay? Is there any signs of cardiac dysfunction? Like that would be maybe a contractility problem. Uh, but I think at first what I'm considering most is, is he hypovolemic or is he fluid overloaded? So you're looking at the filling of, I guess, both sides of the heart you're looking at the contractility, especially of the left heart. Are you looking at the IVC? Is that your thing? Not really. I mean, I'll glance at it maybe, but I don't put a whole lot of stock in it. I think it's a hard exam to do well. And so the data that you get a lot of times is going to be potentially skewed. So in isolation, no, I don't usually use the IVC. If I have a heart that's got, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, IVC is very collapsible, and I have a very empty looking LV that's just extra evidence, but. Okay. Okay. So you take a look at parasternal long and apical four chamber. You see a heart that is, how do I describe it? It is not uh, 
obviously hypokinetic. It's contracting reasonably well. Other than that, you have a hard time saying a, a whole lot. From a filling standpoint, it, you would say it's sort of equivocal. I mean, it looks like a sort of normal heart. If someone came and told you that this patient is either, you know, hypovolemic or or not, you would you would believe them. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, well, all right. Hmm. And he said he's afebrile. What's his heart rate like? It's about eighty. Okay. Why do you ask? Well, I mean, I would think, you know, if he was starting to get septic from something underlying or something like that, you'd expect to see some tachycardia. You really expect to see some tachycardia with the hypotension, just compensatory. Um, do we know, is he on beta blockers or anything like that? This was the guy that is kind of unknown. Oh, right, history. yeah. So we don't I mean, have a whole lot be. of good history on him. So, Well, I guess my next thing would be to maybe try a little fluid. You know, maybe 500 of, uh, you know, the fluid du jour. See if he's responsive enough to that. Uh, you could do a passive leg raise as well. I don't typically uh, do those, not for any particular reason other than just, you know, forgetfulness mostly. Um, but yeah. Well, you're would, here to tell me what you would do. So yeah, I would, you're going to get 500 I'd probably of, just start with 500 of fluid and see if he responds to it. Okay. What do you, what do you want to give? I mean, you got it, everything here. Um, if he's, if he's an ICH, he's probably got normal saline hanging. So that's fine. Okay. If, if nothing's hanging, I would probably go with LR, but. And how do you want them to give it? Uh, fast. <laughs> I mean, bullets it in. Okay. Like, uh, you have to click a time period or a rate oh, in the God, order here. What? Uh, <laughs> I mean, certainly no, no slower than over 30 minutes. Okay. But ideally it would be better to give it faster than that even. Like, do you want them to put it on a pressure bag? Sure. I mean, I don't know, I don't know that I'm that concerned about it because he's not super hypotensive, but I think if you're going to give a bolus, the evidence suggests that you give it faster. It's going to have more of an effect. Whereas giving it over time, you're not going to necessarily see if it's working. So if we could give it over a pressure bag, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I actually feel even more strongly about that usually if it is somewhat diagnostic. Like if I actually want to see what happens, right. then I want to give it faster because if it's too slow, then I'm probably not going to. And then all the more so if I'm not giving that much. Like the smaller the bolus, the, you know, the faster I want to give it because if you give like 250 over like an hour, then you're definitely not going to Sure, it, so. right. Okay, so they got a bag of normal saline, they put on a pressure bag, um, you stand there in the room watching, what do you want to watch? Like, what is your your output here? What are you monitoring? Well, I mean, I'm looking for a change in his blood pressure, obviously. Um, if I've got something that'll give me the um, the pulse pressure variation, um, I don't really use that very often, but I know it's helpful. Um, so mostly I'm just looking to see if his pressure comes up. You know, you, you read so much stuff about uh, fluid responsiveness and, you know, different ways you can challenge people and then different ways you can measure, you know, the, the responsiveness. I, I think most of us, this is it, right? It's their blood pressure. I mean, people will say that that's not very sensitive and, uh, you know, you could have someone whose pressure does or doesn't respond very much, but they're still having an effect on their cardiac output. But especially with an A-line, I think that, like, that just ends up being the most practical thing. Yeah. You know, if you, if someone's cardiac output changes minutely, but uh, their pressure doesn't, I mean, 
And what, what do I do with that? Like it's, it seems more like an academic effect. But. Right. Right. <laughs> no, yeah, unless you have a swan or something. All right. So they, they squeeze this bag in over you know, 10, 15 minutes. And you do notice their blood pressure seemed to climb in response. Um, you get up to like 117 over like 65 and maps in the mid 70s now. Okay. So what's next? I mean, are we done here? <laughs> well, I mean, you'd like to say, well, that's good. We fixed it, right? But uh, I mean, I'm still kind of confused as to why it happened in the first place. You know, one thing with nicardipine is there is a tendency to overshoot with it. You know, it, the half-life of nicardipine is longer than you would really love to see with a, quote, titratable antihypertensive. So I find a lot of times when you get to the, – the best way to titrate nicardipine is when you get to your goal, kind of bump it back down a little bit. So it could just be that, that we've just kind of overshot with things. Um, and if we gave him a little time, time might have fixed it. Um you know, but uh, I think I would send some labs and make sure send a CBC to make sure we're not losing blood somewhere. There's no signs of bleeding, um, so at this point, I think. What would know, a sign of bleeding be? Well, I mean, there's no blood coming out of him, right? Uh, <laughs> External bleeding. Right, yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no blood coming out of the NG tube to signify an upper GI bleed. There's no blood in his urine. Um, there's no blood pouring out of holes in him. Um, you know, again, I would look at his neuro exam and see if this is an expansion of his hematoma. I feel like it's probably less likely to be that. I think if you're bleeding enough in your head to cause a significant drop in your pressure, then you've got a whole lot of other things going on as well. Yeah, that would be unusual. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm still kind of confused as to why you get hypotensive with no concomitant tachycardia. But Okay, so what labs are you sending? Well, I'd just probably start with the CBC, and uh, you could send electrolytes too just to kind of see where we are with things. All right, so you send off a CBC and just some stuff. And uh, a short time later, or a long time, depending on how quick your lab is, you, you get a call from the lab um, pointing out that the patient's hemoglobin is 6.5, whereas on admission several hours ago, it had been um, 9.4. Okay. So the first thing I would want to go do is go back and look at this guy again. You know, after he got the fluid bolus, his uh, pressure came up. Um, but what does he look like now? Is he still normotensive? Is he hypotensive again after some time has passed? Um, still no overt signs of bleeding? Yeah, the nurse is like, I haven't seen any blood. Um, the pressure is, uh, I mean, it's kind of drifting down a little bit again. I mean, it's like right around 100 over maybe 50. The map is like, 65-ish. I mean, it's not like not like we have to do anything about it, but it's probably lower than it was. Okay. Um, one thing we I didn't ask about is SpO2 is okay? Yeah, yeah. He's adding um, 96%. And no, no increase in ventilator requirements or anything like that. Any procedures? He was an ICH, so it probably did not go to angio, but did he, did he get a stick anywhere? Um you know, where he could potentially have like a retroperitoneal bleed. I mean, he, he had a, a couple peripheral IVs. He has a Foley. Um, he just has a radial A-line. That seems to be it. All right. He didn't get any groin access, though. Like he didn't go to Angio or get a fem no. line or a fem stick. Okay. So, I mean, you can always repeat the CBC. Uh, I don't know. 
you know, I gotta go back and forth on how much I feel like repeating labs is worth it versus a waste of time. You know, if you have a patient who just doesn't clinically look like their labs, right? So the CBC is a great example. You got a patient who has a massive drop in their hemoglobin, but they just don't look it, right? They're awake and talking to you. Their color's good. Their vitals are stable. Then I would probably repeat that because it feels like it's wrong. Uh, in a patient like this who their exam can't tell me a lot, but their blood pressure is falling again, even though I don't have a really good idea of where he's bleeding, I, it feels like it's probably correct. I assume the lab was drawn out of the A-line. It was. Okay. So that makes me less concerned that it was dilutional from, you know, it got drawn downstream of that bolus that was going in. Um, and all the cell lines look otherwise normal. Like he, he didn't have a big drop in his white count, big drop in his platelet count, et cetera. No, his white counts like 15 platelets are like 160. Okay. A fluctuation, but. So that also makes me think more that it's real, right? If you have a diluted sample, you're going to see a decrease in your whites and a decrease in your platelets as well as your H&H. Uh, &H. Um, so it seems like he's losing blood from somewhere. Um where I don't exactly know. Um, anything off with his chemistries? They look pretty unremarkable to you. Okay, BUN's fine. Why do you ask? So elevated BUN, especially kind of out of proportion to the creatinine, makes me wonder about a GI bleed, particularly an upper GI bleed, which would be unusual since he doesn't have anything coming out of his OG tube. But um, you know, you can get you can get that bump in your BUN with digested blood. Yeah. Well, I mean, who knows? Uh, when he came in, his BUN was like 19. Now it's like 29. All right. Well, I, mean, I kind of want to give him a unit of blood if that H&H &H is real, um, even though I'm not sure, you know, hemodynamically it's justified. Uh, but if his hemoglobin is really, would you say 6.8? 6.5. 6 6.5, yeah. So if that's if that's legit, then I would kind of want to give him a unit of blood and still be looking for where he might be losing blood because again, this seems like it's unlikely to be be a chronic issue. This is an acute change, even though it's been over time. Uh, he should have some blood loss somewhere. Okay, so you're going to transfuse one unit of packed red blood cells? Yeah, I would give him a unit. So you uh, you make sure he has a type and cross. Uh, they find you a unit of blood. Uh, the nurse runs that in. Anything else you want to do now? You just want to see how you respond to that. And he's been afebrile, you said? I think it's 37.9. Hmm. Well. There's no trick questions here. Just, you know, what would you really yeah, do? Yeah, you can make the argument that you could start like a sepsis workup or something like that, but this really does feel more like blood loss. So I think I'd give him a unit of blood and kind of see how he responds to it. Okay. The blood goes in over about an hour or so. Um, the pressure seems to, to perk up with that as well. And he gets back into the, you know, one teen systolic and maps in the seventies. You wander off and do some other things. And then maybe hour and a half, two hours later, uh, you check back in and the nurse is like, you know, the blood's done. Pressure is, I don't know. It's kind of in this like range that it's been bouncing around in, but you know, it's kind of, Back towards the lower end again. I mean, the map's around 60 now. Your systolic's like right around 90. Uh, heart rate's like 85. 
he does this like I don't know gesture. Um, Did we get a post transfusion H and H by any chance? No. Do you want it? Sure. You send that off. And by the way, do you um, do you guys have any kind of point of care labs, like iStat or something that you could do right there? So it depends. Yeah, it de- it depends. Some of our ICUs have an ABG analyzer in them, so you can always get an ABG or VBG and run it and get you a lot of information off that. We don't have iStats. I don't have any way to do like point of care um, coagulopathy stuff like um, you know PTINR, et cetera. I can basically get anything you can get off a ABG panel. I can get usually in a hurry. You get like an H and H and stuff on there. Yeah. Is that something you would make use of here or you would just send to the lab? So our neuro ICU is one of the ICUs that doesn't have that. And so that's sort of what I've been under the presumption if this is a, since this is an ICH, I'm presuming that I'm in the neuro ICU. So that's why I haven't done that. If I was in the surgical ICU, yeah, I would do a point of care. Okay. Um, and you, you would trust that as much as something from the lab? Uh, yeah, ish. I mean, you know, um, I... I think it's helpful for getting data in a hurry and trending data. If I got something that just seemed really out of whack with what I expected to find, then I might follow up with sending something to the lab. But for the most part, I think it's accurate enough. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you send a H and H down to uh, the lab and they run the H and the H and uh, you, I don't know 30, 40 minutes, um, you check the labs and you note that the uh, hemoglobin, we'll stick with that for now, uh, previously it was 6.5, so now 6.8 mm. post-transfusion. Well, that doesn't seem like enough. You know, I would have expected it to come up a little higher with a unit of blood. So that makes me concerned that there's active bleeding somewhere. Yeah, I just don't have a good idea of where. Um is he appropriate to, can I get a neuro exam on this guy? Yeah. You know, the nurse has been doing one ostensibly every hour or so. Um, when you hold this little bit of propofol he's on, uh, he does wake up, uh, and you confirm this at the bedside when you're there. Um, he, uh, moves his extremities, but not so much on the right side. His right arm and leg are like one to two out of five. Um, his is that new are, or is that consistent with his That's how he's been since okay. he got to the ICU. Um, his pupils are, are equal and responsive. Um, and he, you know, seems to follow simple commands for you. Okay. Well, I mean, hmm, with, with no other suspected source, I would probably consider doing like a CT, um, like a CTA of the abdomen and pelvis to look for bleeding um, particularly a GI bleed protocol. His exam, abdominal exam is okay. I mean, he's no, no gross tenderness or um, anything like that. His belly is, seems to be soft. Maybe it's a little distended. You know, you have a hard time telling is that just how his, his belly is or is a little sure. bigger. Um, and you sort of have a hard time gauging whether it's tender or anything. He, you know, you're able to kind of get something of an exam out of him, but he he's not really engaging with you enough to. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I guess if I got the ultrasound there, I can put the ultrasound probe on him and look for free fluid, um, sort of a fast type exam, just to see if something obvious pops up. Uh, otherwise, I think this is likely to be some sort of GI bleed. Okay. So you're looking for free intraperitoneal fluid 
evidencing some kind of a intra-abdominal bleed yeah. uh, outside the GI tract. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you do, you're doing a, what, a full fast or just certain views or? Yeah, I did. I would do the, just do the full thing and do it pretty quickly. So. All right. So you take a look, uh, and you start in his right upper quadrant and, um, you do see what looks like some degree, not a ton, but not just a trace amount of some free fluid, which, uh, looks a little more complex than, than just simple fluid. Um, in Morrison's pouch and around the liver. And then you don't really see much in the left upper quadrant, but you, you think you see some in the kind of pelvic view as well. So generally with a fast, you can't differentiate between blood or ascites or other things, uh, but you said it looks more complex. It, it, you know, it's not, it's not kind of pristine and black looking. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like a little more complicated and hyperechoic than that. There's not a ton of it for you to really kind of sink your teeth into it, but that's yeah. your impression. Interesting. All right. So um, I guess the other thing, while I'm in the belly, I'd take a look at the aorta. I feel like it's unlikely that that's the problem, but while I'm there, might as well. Okay. So you're uh, looking at the abdominal aorta. Yeah. And what are you looking for? Uh, any evidence of aneurysm, any evidence of dissection, um, like I said, I think it's unlikely, but uh, a slow leak from an aneurysm could account for this. Um, and since I'm since I'm ultrasounding the belly, I might as well. Okay. So what what probe and what window? Uh, curvilinear. I'd start probably with a um, just a like a short axis view of the aorta, starting up at the xiphoid and kind of scanning down the belly to the bifurcation looking for any evidence okay. of uh, aneurysm, dissection, et cetera. Okay. Uh, do you make any use of uh, a longitudinal view for this as well, or you just it's, go down the short axis? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I will. It depends on kind of what I see in the short axis. Okay. And do you try to get at the thoracic aorta at all, or is this just the belly? Um, I would probably just do the belly. I feel like the thoracic is a little harder to get. Um, hopefully I saw, I saw the root and the descending part in the parasternal view. Um, but you could also do it like a supersternal view. If you want to look at the arch, um, that's a little more tricky, but, but probably just the abdomen. Yeah, probably just the abdomen. Okay. Um, you assess as best you can. Um, you, I mean, you kind of see the whole aorta down to the bifurcation. It's pretty cloudy in spots, you know, there's bowel gas and stuff. Um, but you don't see any obvious dilation and you don't see any flaps to the best of your ability. So I guess at this point I would send some coags off and probably give him another unit of reds. And yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm stuck having to scan his belly. Okay. So one unit of red cells you're doing, what are you doing? Uh, like a PTINR, like a PTT. I mean, I think I would probably, I like tag. Um, I think Mm. a tag would be, is useful. Um, because you know you're going to potentially get stuff from there that you're not going to get with just your regular tests, right? So, for example, if this is a guy who takes Plavix for some reason, you know he may have a perfectly normal platelet count, but his platelets may be all. And you, ha- you guys have so. tag available twenty four seven for the ICU. Uh, yeah, we do. So oh, great. I have to send it off, but uh, but yeah, I can get one anytime okay. I need. All right, so you send a tag, uh, you order another unit of cells, and you order him a scan, and you're doing a CTA abdomen pelvis? Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, no chest? No, um, no oxygenation, or I guess we could should have gotten probably gotten an ABG to see if he had ventilation issues as well. But um, I mean, I don't really have any reason to suspect PE, right? No right heart strain on the echo. Looked okay to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's two ways you can look at it. You could say while we're down there and while we're scanning, might as well scan everything, right? That's one approach. Um, but I don't see a big indication for scanning his chest. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to have any cardiac dysfunction. He doesn't seem to have any pulmonary type stuff that makes me think he has some sort of lung issue or a, um, PE. Um, so I think I would probably just stick with his belly. I feel like sometimes we, uh, we go to CT, like people go to target, you know, they're, yeah. you know, what while, while we're here, <laughs> yeah, I, I, we we might as well get a, a claw-footed bathtub. <laughs> right. Well, and my first reaction too, when I started thinking about going to CT is, well, I should probably scan his head. Um, you know, just <laughs> might as well get his, he's uh, got a head bleed, scan done. but, uh, <laughs> you know, if he's, if his exam's otherwise normal, I don't know that there's really a, a legit indication for scanning yeah, his head. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so CT, a admin pelvis and, you are uh, timing this to look for GI bleeding. Yeah, I was going to say, I would ask him if they could do a GI protocol. And of course, what that exactly means is up to the radiologist. Right. So usually yeah. it means uh, like an arterial phase and like usually a delayed, um, like a delayed venous phase. So you can wait to see if there's blood accumulation. Yeah, and, and some probably some thinner slices too. So you can look for smaller things. But yeah. Okay. Uh, you order this stuff. Do you want to like wait for the, blood or labs or anything before you send them or you just send them now and then it'll catch them when they get back. He's stable. Yeah. It's sort of as described. Yeah. I think that's, we can go ahead and send him. Okay. If we can draw All the right. blood and send the blood off, then I don't yeah, need to yeah. wait for the results. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You send him, it goes okay. He gets back. Um, blood shows up and they're hanging that. Um, you are taking a look at the scan uh, when you get a call from the radiologist who says, listen, I don't know what this guy's deal is, but um, he seems to have an intraperitoneal hematoma. Um, and it looks like it's maybe from a, a ruptured splenic artery. Um, I, I, I think maybe there, is an, maybe there is an aneurysm there. It's a little hard to tell now. Um, the scan could have been better timed, but that's what it looks like. So he has this kind of, I don't know, moderate size uh, hematoma in there now. Hmm, okay. Well, so I think, um, you know, at this point I've had to give him two units of blood. He's didn't respond as well as I'd like to the first unit. He's continues to be fluid slash blood responsive, but then gets hypotensive again. I think it's probably worth talking to IR at this point to say, if this is if there is something going on in the spleen and the splenic artery aneurysm that's ruptured, is there something you can do about it? So IR, any other calls you're making? I think I'd wait to see what IR said first. If they said no, we can't do anything, or I looked at the scan and I don't think that's what's going on, then then I'm probably talking to surgery. But like Gen Surge, yeah, like Gen Surge. Okay. No history of trauma. No obvious signs of trauma. Right. This. No, that we know no of bruising or anything. I mean, he didn't, no one said they saw him like get hit by a truck or anything. He was just acting weird. Okay. Like, um, just as a, you know, as a NP staffing an ICU at night, 
Are, are you talking to an attending about it? Like, are you letting someone know that this kind of thing is going on? Yeah. So I've got an attending that it's in the house cross covering multiple ICUs. So I'm, you know, keeping him up to speed on stuff, but like, I mean, this is just sort of interesting, especially for the newer folks. Like at what point in this process would you probably let him know that you're dealing with some kind of a situation here? So we have a list and I have to say, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but once upon a time, one of our attendees made this list for the residents, um, the six or seven, I can't remember P's of when to call your attending. And one of them is packed cells. So if you're giving blood, you should let an attending know. Um, so I would let them know if, I, Hey, I'm going to give this guy some blood. Um, you know, depending on, how the night was going. If this was during the day when I have a little bit more one-on-one level coverage, I might just text my attending and say, Hey, just let you know, this dude's a little hypotensive. I'm going to give him some fluid, just keeping you in the loop. Uh, at night, if I know particularly where we are, my attending is probably tied up in the cardiac surgery ICU with, you know, everything coming unglued. Uh, I'm probably a little less, um, just updatey. Um, so I probably would have let him know, Hey, I'm giving him some blood because his hemoglobin's low. And then especially when, uh, Hey, he didn't respond to the blood like I would hope. And so I'm going to give him another unit of blood and I'm sending him for a CT scan. Um, but if at, at any point I felt like he was becoming more unstable, uh, I probably would have texted and said, Hey, can you just swing by here and get a second set of eyes on this guy? I don't really know what's going on, but it's not looking good. Yeah. Yeah, um, we uh, our attendings are not in house. I think for me, I probably would have let someone know that just the stuff that was going on probably before I scanned them. I feel like sending someone to CT is a yeah. little bit of a, a step, um, and partly just so they know. But in particular, if they happen to be um, maybe a surgeon, because <laughs> that actually may be a sure. useful perspective. Yeah, it's not just a FYI. Like you know, that's <laughs> they actually maybe have some utility there. Uh, and then certainly if you're doing something like trying to find uh, someone to stop bleeding or something like that. But yeah, absolutely. Obviously this is all really depends on each person and who they work with and their relationship and that sort of thing. But yeah, we have an EICU too in our place that is staffed sometimes by our attendings, sometimes by attendings from other services. So if I'm on it, when I'm on at night, which is not all that common anymore, but if I'm on at night, I like to know if it's one of our folks in the EICU and if so, who, because that gives me just another, somebody I can bounce stuff off of. If I know that, you know, my primary in-house attending is tied up with a bunch of disasters upstairs. Uh, but the guy in the EICU is one of our attendings. I can just text him and be like, Hey, can you take a look at this and see what you think? Um, so that may alter my threshold for how often and how much I want to let somebody know. Right. Again, sort of just dependent on, how busy they are and how much free time they have versus how much I feel like I need to sort of handle yeah, yeah. before. Yeah. I and you know, the, this modern era of like text messages and stuff is probably bad in some ways, but it's, I think it's been helpful because it opens up a lot of opportunities to just like give people like, Hey, FYI's yeah. versus having to like call them and like pin them down. Cause then they feel like they're obliged to give you all kinds of advice and stuff, but right. Versus, <laughs> Just so not surprised can be yeah. nice, but okay. So you call IR. They say, "Yeah, oh, that's weird. It looks like a looks like that artery ruptured." Um, they bring it off to the suite and they embolize it, um, and the patient seems to be hemostatic. 
So strong work. We'll say you save this one. What can we learn from a case like this? And this was obviously kind of left field, but I, I mean, I've seen a, a good two or three patients like this who were in the unit for something totally unrelated and blew out some like random little artery in their belly or something like that. Um, so weird stuff happens. I like that. Um, I like that. First of all, not to like, toot my horn making the case. But I guess what I liked about the case is that not only is it not obvious what's going on in a case like this, and I think this is super realistic, you don't even know at first if it's a big deal. And like that, that's how these things present, right? And like so many of these, you know, you get a call from a nurse or something. You don't know if this is like nothing. This is just some little like perturbation in your shift that you'll never hear about again. Or this is like the opening volley in some catastrophe that is going to occupy you for the next eight hours. So yeah. that, that's part of the whole dilemma. It's not only what do you do, it's like, is, is, should I just like blow this off? Maybe this is nothing. <laughs> or maybe this is like someone's dying. Yeah, and I think that's really important because I think that's something that is often not well appreciated until you're the one doing it. Um you know, I think when I was a nurse, I thought all sorts of things about like, oh, this is not a big deal. But you see particularly new providers, interns, new PAs, new NPs would sort of seem to really get worked up about it. And you go, well, why? It's not a big deal. But you're right. Like, I'm, I don't know if this is just a little bump. If this is, like I said, this is somebody we overshot on carding uh, or if there's potentially something bigger going on and you you don't want to just sort of blow something off as not a big deal until you know it's not a big deal. Yeah, and I think that uh, we don't always appreciate also that there is a whole level of screening that's ha happening before it even reaches you too. Like yeah. unless you're wandering around finding stuff on patients on your own, usually it, it's like a nurse telling you about something. So they have already decided that you should know about it. Right. There's probably five times that number of things that happen that they're just like, Oh, that's weird. I'll just watch for a little bit or something like that. And then it goes away and that's it. <laughs> now, yeah. of course it depends on the nurse, how many things you hear about and a lot of other things and what orders are saying to notify me about this and that or the other and blah, blah, blah. Um, but like that is going on. You're, you're, it might feel like you're hearing about everything that happens in the ICU, but you're actually hearing about the things that somebody thought you should know about. Right. And I think that that sort of thing happens at all levels of medicine. And I think we are generally not great about appreciating that. You know, it's like the surgeon who says, you know, oh, the ED providers, all they do is consult people. But, you know, as a surgeon, you don't hear about the 10 cases that come in that they rule out as non-surgical and send home or send to somebody else. Right. Same thing here. Like you said, you don't know how much has gone on before that nurse has decided it needs to go up the chain to you. Yeah, and of course, how the nurse views that part of their job can vary widely. You know, some of them really feel like it's a, both an important and sort of a empowering part of their job to use their judgment. Some people don't want to or are worried about getting in trouble or something, so they will, it seems like, tell you about everything. So you have to take that into consideration as well. But there is kind of this extra variable there. I would say just to add something in for new providers too, something that I find helpful is to have that talk. Now, obviously things come up that are unanticipated, but you know, have that talk about stop points. Like when do I want to be notified about something? 
you know, um, so if I have a patient that is hypotensive that I've put on pressors, I would say, you know, titrate this for a map of 65. If you get to 0.08 of norepi, I want a phone call, right? And so that you've, you've set some definite standards because you will, you'll find some people who, for whatever reason, um, feel less obligated to notify you about stuff, you know, whether they are inexperienced and just don't understand or whether they're very experienced and they go, I'm super experienced and I know this is not that big a deal. Right. But um, it just sort of helps establish some stuff. The other thing I tell new providers a lot is if you come off of a drip and you're off of it for a decent amount of time, DC it. Um, Because I've had that where I run into a patient who I thought was doing well. I've been really busy with other stuff. I go and find that they're on norepi and a decent amount of norepi when I didn't, they were previously, I thought they were all this, all this time. I thought they were not on any pressors because there was an order for it from three days ago when they were on it. And so somebody just restarted it. Um, and so I feel like anything you can do to sort of force that phone call or, or not even necessarily forces is not the right word, but you know, to, to make sure that there is, definite stop points and communication points to keep, to make sure that everybody's staying in, in talk in communication with each other. Yeah. Now I, um, I liked a lot that you turned to ultrasound to try to make some sense of this. And I definitely do that as well. I mean, I think of all the things that you, you can use point of care ultrasound for, I mean, if it's not at the very top, it must be close to it. As far as a meaningful applications, I think is working up, undifferentiated shock or, or at least hypotension. And the reason, and this is not obvious to everyone, but of all the causes of shock, you know, your cardiogenic, your obstructives, your uh, hypovolemia, distributive, and so on, they're not all like equal from a operational perspective or from like a, a probability perspective. Really, like most of the hypotension we come across is is probably like distributive, like it's sepsis, like that's just by numbers, right? But the most important ones to diagnose are actually the opposite because we, sepsis they just give like people pressors and a little bit of fluid, and they, like you're gonna you could treat that by default, like the, the nurse could treat that on their own. You can make a protocol. You, you almost like that's what you're gonna do if you don't do anything else. What you need to diagnose is the other stuff, which is not as common but is more treatable. You have to diagnose that like tamponade or that right. pneumothorax or that, yeah, bleeding patient or that cardiogenic shock or something. Cause those are like things that you have really straightforward treatments for and things that if you don't treat them, the patient probably is not going to do well. If you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, titrating up pressors cause you thought it was distributive and ultrasound can diagnose all that stuff like at the drop of a hat, like these are easy studies, you know, make sure yeah. there's no effusion and make sure the heart's squeezing and all that stuff. So that's like, that's money, I think. And that's why people use these kind of packaged exams, uh, whatever, eFast, Rush, all these things that just kind of look at all those things pretty quickly to make sure uh, there's no, all these correctable causes. Um, and it, it's, it's easy enough that you can do it as more of a screen than a targeted study kind of like doing a physical exam. You know, it's harmless, patient's hypotensive. It's all the justification in the world to, you know, look at these various things, even if you think it's pretty low probability that they have 
whatever, intra-abdominal bleeding. Why not look? Right. And I think, yeah, you're right. So like the rush protocol is a good example of that. It does sort of hit like all of these potential sources, gives you lots of evidence to sort of, you know, put together and synthesize and come up as this distributive, as this hypovolemic, et cetera. Um, and, you know, there's a specific order to doing those in terms of more, most to least likely. I like to um, kind of combine if I know stuff about the patient into what I think is more likely um, and maybe just isolate parts of that. But you're right. If you are practiced at doing it, you can do the rush exam in two minutes, you know, uh, head to toe. So, yeah. And there's always a, you know, a balance of utility. Like, yeah, I mean, I want you to do everything. Like I'll very rarely look at an aorta. Um, and I think that's generally fair in my context, but I mean, if you could have some other random thing, I mean, you could also, you know, have a leaking dissection or something. Um, and people come in, especially who have unclear medical histories, so they can come in with multiple problems. You know, sure. I, I think of, I was just thinking also about, you know, deciding when things are important. I feel like people go through a, a, a curve of this based on their experience. Um, and for any particular, whatever area that they feel comfortable in, uh, at first they will not want to do anything because they're, they're, they don't have the confidence to do anything. And then as they learn more about it, they'll always want to do something. And then, as you re really kind of develop mastery, then you start to scale it back again. So the like brand new provider in the ICU, you know, you're, you're timid, you don't know anything. You just sort of never know anything and want to do anything. You'll call for help and stuff, which is fine. Uh, and then you, you develop some areas that you understand, like say you start to get good at giving people electrolytes, then you'll always give people electrolytes. Like that's your, that's your wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. The number is slow. <laughs> we dish that stuff out there. Um, and then, you know, enough time passes and then you start to be confident enough to do the more zen-tensivist thing and say, listen, you know, this patient is, is low risk. They, they don't need everything under the world. You know, more stuff is just more, more harm and antigenesis and cost and stuff. I, I don't think this guy needs to have a potassium of four. He's, he's here for a foot fracture or something. Um, so it, you know, depending on where you are in that curve, it can be really hard to break out of it. So, you know, you're a intern and it's your first month here, it's really hard for someone calls me and says, hey, this blood pressure is a little low to do anything but say, let's watch it. Right. Because <laughs> you're like, you have to break out of the, the current milieu for that. You have to make big moves here. It's, you know, to walk into a room with a patient who looks sort of stable and say, holy cow, you know, let's call a mass transfusion protocol and like go to CT and call surgery or something. That, that takes a lot. Um, on the other hand, to, for a patient who seems like they need something done for you to say, I know what's going on. It's actually not something that requires us to act. We're just going to watch it. That could also be hard. <laughs> and yeah. then these middle grounds, like probably this patient was in, of course, those are the hardest. I mean, he's not crashing, but he seems to still be bleeding. What do you do with that? It's not really a right answer but you got to make a decision anyway. I mean, this guy, could you have watched him for a few more hours? Yeah, sure. I mean, you probably could have made this the next shift's problem if you tried, um, or consult a bunch of people and make it their problem. Um, on the other hand, he's sitting there bleeding and you have a cause for it now, so you might as well manage it. Uh, judgment calls. To me, anyway, the single 
hardest decision like that to make is when to electively intubate someone. You know, you've got someone who's crashing, it's obvious. Someone who's doing great, it's obvious. But you've got somebody who's just got a worsening respiratory alkalosis, acidosis. You've got slowly worsening, uh, you know, work of breathing, et cetera. And you go, I mean, what's going to happen tonight, right? This is what this is what I say, you know, most afternoons in the neuro IC, right? Is this, is this guy going to need to be intubated? If so, is it going to happen tonight? Because I really don't want to leave this for them to have to do in the middle of the night. But on the other hand, if this is just how he looks and, you know, he's going to look like this tomorrow, I don't want to intubate someone on the off chance that he might need to be intubated later. You know, so I think there are definitely cases like that. And this is a, another good example, right? This guy's not crashing, so... Yeah, I mean, you don't want to, you know, cause iatrogenic harms, but you, right. you also don't want to just sit there uh, using up the buffer of this patient's ability to compensate just to do something eventually that you should have done now before right. you put them through an extra helping of shock. <laughs> right, yeah. All right, well, it's a fun case. What, what else should we say about this, Brian? What do you think? Uh, I think it's good. Like you said, this is a very realistic scenario. It's not anything spectacular or, um, you know, uh, particularly exciting, but it's pretty common type stuff. Um, I agree with you. It was a good case in that it was not really related to why he's there. Although you could argue that if you've got an aneurysm that in your spleen, then maybe you had an aneurysm in your brain as well. And that's what causes ICH. But, you know, it's not something that would immediately jump out at you as being related. Um, but things happen to people. And, you know, I tell students all the time, there's no law that says you can't have two things wrong with you at once. Um, and so I think that's, that's a tricky thing is when you start going down, getting pigeonholed in this idea of why is the patient here? This problem must be related to that. Well, not necessarily, you know. You know, at the end of the day, shock is kind of should be bread and butter for the ICU. And while there can be a lot that goes into it, the first step sh should always be figuring out what kind of shock it is. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, if you can't be all that clever, you could do pretty well having just like a, a two-step process. First step being use ultrasound and rule out these other causes. And then the second step is if you've ruled them all out, then assume it's sepsis and you treat that with with pressors and stuff. You could get, right. get pretty far if that was your algorithm. Whereas if you'd skip the first step, you're not going to get that far until you miss something important, I think. Right. Well, and, you know, with approach to any problem like this, there's the question of what's going on, what's causing the problem, and how can I fix it? But also the more immediate, what needs to be done right now, right? If you have a patient who's, you know, very hypotensive and starting to look really sick and, and heading in a very bad direction, and you're not sure what's going on, you know, some fluid. And if that doesn't help, some pressors. And maybe that stabilizes things and gives you time to think. Certainly you need to figure out what the problem was, but you also just need to treat the immediate issue. Right. I mean, that's that's the kind of simplifying strategy of thinking first of what you can do. That You know, the emergency department and some people like to do when, you know, you don't know what's going on, but you know what you have in your toolbox. Right. And I mean, imagine if you had only one medicine in the hospital, all your clinical decisions would just be, should I give them this medicine or not? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, for a lot of problems, there's a limited number of things. 
you still have to then turn back and try to figure out what's going on because it does affect a lot of things, including potentially opening up other toolboxes that you wouldn't even have thought about. You know, right. you, it didn't even occur to you that they might need steroids or something. Um, but now you know they do. So, all right, let's call it quits there. Um, I think that was a good look at this topic. Uh, and I think we've got probably another case for you guys in a couple of weeks, but we'll see you then. Remember, this is just Brian, uh, my opinion. We don't know anything about anything. We're not representing our institutions. This is just us uh, trying to give you some good education. We'll talk to you soon. See ya.